The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hey all, it's Joe, and I am very excited to be here with you today to be speaking with Chris Moore, Vice President for Intellectual Property and General Counsel at SIIA, which stands for the Software and Information Industry Association based in Washington, D.C. Sometimes people ask me, what lit the fire under you when it comes to technology? Why are you so passionate about it? Well, it goes back to when I was a wee kid and I watched a movie called War Games. Uh, It stars Matthew Broderick and it has another famous actor from the UK called John Wood. And it was about a kid that basically gets a computer and he starts trying to hack things. First thing he does, he breaks into his school, his school's network to change grades. And you're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Can you actually do that? But it eventually goes down the path of him taking it up a notch and he hacks into some computer network that the military runs and he almost starts World War III, which just blew me away. I immediately after watching that talk with my mom, I had saved a whole bunch of money from cutting lawns and taking care of people's yards. So we worked to buy a computer. I bought this computer and then I started messing around with software, downloading things that are very different than what you would download today via the World Wide Web. You'd have to log in through a modem, through some distributed network. Um, Software didn't work the same way as it does today. Sort of try to understand it. And then I started poking holes in not a bad way, but I started poking holes, jumping on the networks and playing around in this space. And I was so like, I loved it. I thought it was the most amazing thing. One of the things I never understood, and I thought about it every once in a while, was the way that government looked at this, the way that private industry looked at this, software companies as they were starting to come into age, how they looked at it. Today, I learned. Right. So Chris, my guest, takes us down the rabbit hole where we start talking about privacy, data privacy, piracy of information, of software, intellectual property, artificial intelligence, the future of how technology works. Right. So how software is now interpreted on the legal side. That's what we're going to investigate today and learn about from Chris. Now, let's get started. The hearing. All right. Well, we are here. Very excited to have Chris Moore, Vice President for Intellectual Property and General Counsel at SIIA, which is the Software and Information Industry Association. What in the world is that? Forgive me. (laughs) It's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you all do there? Um, So so writ large, I guess, our our membership, we have about 800 companies, total members. they do a variety of different things uh, from platforms that you would know uh, to uh, information providers uh, that you would also know. Our role is to help our um, our members navigate, I would say, the life cycle of information. So we have, uh, we have members who are software creators. We have members uh, who are platforms. Uh, and when we have members who are publishers and providers of educational content and technology. Um, and they all have interests in um, intellectual property protection, in uh, you know the certainty of their terms and conditions of use. Uh, they have interest in uh, privacy, how information is managed, and how the government um, regulates 
uh, the transmission of data and under what circumstances. Um, and it, my own portion of that policy portfolio is on the IP side. Okay. So your day-to-day, what does that look like? What do you get involved with? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> every day is different. Um, so I have uh, so I have four now different roles. Um, so one role is to act as the association's um, front-facing person on Capitol Hill, which means I'm a lobbyist. The other part of it is um, acting as the association's internal plumber. Um, you know, legal problems and agreements and things of that nature, stuff a general counsel does. Um, the third part of it is uh, I run the uh, association's amicus program. And what we do there is uh, it is, I, I view it as um, as lobbying by other means in many ways. In other words, what the, the function of that program is not to look at an immediate fire that may be occurring on Capitol Hill or in a state legislature, but to look at, uh, in, in uh, tandem with our members, uh, of at where we want the law to be in five years on a particular issue, and to start making arguments in particular cases uh, that move the needle uh, in a favorable direction. Uh, and then the fourth piece is um, I also do some anti-piracy work for us. Oh, wow. Okay. That part, I'd love to come back to that because that's fascinating. I know there's a lot of things going on in that space right now. So that's a bit about the organization and mm-hmm. a little bit about what you're doing there. Mm-hmm. What led you there? How did you get to that spot? Uh, you know, a series of happy accidents, I think. Okay. Um, I mean, one of the things was I was very interested in uh, intellectual property law when I was um, when I was in law school. Um and I'm not a patent lawyer. I mean, I, I have played one on YouTube, but I'm, it's not my, uh, you know, it's not an area where I would consider myself uh, fluent, although I'm becoming, you know, increasingly conversational and very comfortable with certain areas of subject matter. But, you know, in terms of having the, the whole course outline in my head or whatever, I can just recite. No, absolutely not. Um, but anyway, I, I like doing copyright and the copyright bar in DC is a pretty small one, or it was, it's bigger now, but it, it was very small. Uh, and uh, we had a guest lecturer who came to our law school that I really liked. And after school, I was um, doing the informational interview circuit. And we went out to lunch and really hit it off. And uh, he said, you know, he had started a small law firm. Um, that at the time was doing really interesting work. If if copyright was your thing, they were doing, uh, you know, they were doing, uh, they were working on database protection legislation. Uh, they had a satellite company um, as a client uh, dealing with <clears throat> royalty rates for retransmission. And then there was a bunch of what I would call overflow work, which was technology related uh, transactions and, and some copyright litigation. So it was really ideal. Um, and both both guys, Chris Meyer and Mike Clipper, were well-recognized experts. So he said to me, can you start, you know, can you come into work tomorrow? Tomorrow was Saturday. I said, no, <laughs> uh, but Monday's fine. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and he didn't tell his partner. So <laughs> oh, no. when I walked in, that? well, the fallout from that was, I think the first words spoken to me in my professional life were, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then uh, what happened after that was essentially, uh, unfortunately, so there were two guys, uh, and uh, Chris Meyer, um, unfortunately, he, he had cancer. And so he died three years in, uh, and I was elevated early. Um, so, and we added uh, a couple of uh, people with, uh, you know, frankly, more gravitas. <laughs> Um, a guy named uh, Bob Gorman, who taught at uh, Penn for many years and is a pretty well-known uh, academic that dealt uh, with copyright issues and labor law issues. And then uh, a guy named uh, Paul Bender, uh, who did two tours in the SG's office and is okay. still teaching um, out in Arizona. Um, and so we developed uh, and enhanced, I would say, uh, our... Um, practice in the areas of um, in the areas of con law and in particular its intersection with uh, with intellectual property which is an area I guess of niche expertise because it doesn't come up that much what inspired you when you were younger to actually go into law like what was it that was there some catalyst something that jumped out at you like ah was it a show was it something like whoa I, I want to go down this road to go to Catholic University in, in terms of going to law school it was genuinely something I really wanted to do um, you know, I, I will say my dad was a lawyer. Uh, and when I got out of college, I wanted to make sure I, I always I really do enjoy writing. I enjoy the process of writing um, and uh, explaining stuff. And so when uh, my, my dad was a lawyer, when I got out of school, I was trying to college rather. Um, I had to figure out uh, whether I wanted to do it because he did it or whether it was something I really wanted to do. Um, and so once the, uh, you know, after a couple of years, I worked on the Hill for a couple of years and then decided, no, this is something, you know, I really want to do. Uh, <laughs> you weren't beaten back by that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, you know, there I worked on the, the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee and I was pretty sure that, I mean, it was, it was interesting work um, and valuable work. Uh, it was a great insight into the legislative sausage making process. Um, I will tell you it's it's a very different process now in many ways, but um, I was ready to I was sure that that was something that, that so I you were to you do. were the one out of the ten. So my experience from that was I had ten of my uh, undergrad individuals that I used to know very well came down from uh, Rhode Island to go to to work on the hill. And after one year, they saw how things worked and they're like, one stayed out of those 10. So you were that one person that basically stayed. There's so much that can be done, clearly. Um, as we start to look potentially at what you are doing, what your organization is doing, the association right now, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of hot topics, right? So one one of those topics, we go down many of these if we wanted to, is around um, IP. Sure. So especially in software, right? So there's... There's a lot of issues around the world about how we're handling that in the U.S. versus what's going on maybe in China. Um, what's the landscape look like from your vantage point? Like what we're doing here in the U.S. versus what's happening abroad? Uh, well, I mean, I think what we're doing in the U.S. is uh, is by and large pretty good. I mean, we have, you know, and I'll take those things. I'll, I'll take People say IP and they they immediately assume patents. So I'll assume that's what you asked, and then I'll get into copyrights. Um, the so from from the patent perspective, I mean, I think 
on, on behalf of the folks that that we represent, um, the the IP system has been an enormous success story for the software and technology industries. Um, there has been particularly um, after the Alice decision, uh, which redefined how you get a patent or what you can get a patent in. So let me see if I can put that in English. But the the general idea is that uh, in order to get a patent in software, you can't say, for example, I have a better way to uh, conduct arbitrage on a computer. You cannot get a patent in that. You have to have an invention that actually advances the underlying art. So an easier example would be to say, oh, I have a program that makes the memory in the computer run faster or that makes a database work faster with the CPU. Okay. That's patentable. The other part is not. And what's that's done is opened up space for companies to innovate rather than having to pay for licenses for things that, frankly, are, in the language of the law, abstract ideas. Um, and that's been a really good thing. Uh, now, in terms of what's coming, uh, you know, our, we are beginning to focus, and many of our members are beginning to focus on AI, uh, in particular, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is there are all of these kinds of requirements of the in the patent law. So, for example, uh, you have to have a person who's reasonably skilled in the art, and the the patent issues on something that would not be obvious to that person. So, the way I think of it is, it's not the next logical step; it's at least two steps ahead. Um, and what do you do if that's a machine? Who's the person? You have to have an enable requirement and a written description. How would you, how would you do that kind of thing? What kind of policy? I mean, how mechanically and legally? How do you, how do you do that? Is is a machine even allowed to be an inventor? These are the kinds of, because the statute says inventor. The word inventor goes back to 1789. Do you need to change the statute? Even if you did, would that be? Could Congress do it? Those kinds of questions. Um, you know, those are, those are interesting. Those yeah. are very much uh, first principle type questions. And I think, you know, from a practical standpoint, as because we have members uh, who are investing millions and if not billions of dollars in a variety of this stuff, it is important that we don't get stuck in what I would call, um, let's call it Alice 2. So because what's happening now and is that- Forgive me, when you say Alice- Alice is shorthand for the Supreme Court case I was talking yeah. about. The okay. one, the one that said you need to have a uh, a te technical solution to a technical problem, and it's patent eligible if you like. That's shorthand. Perfect. Thank okay. You. So what's happening now is that uh, AI is beginning to become more democratized in that there are open source solutions to this. There are neural networks that you can go and bring your data to and have the data be analyzed and manipulated, and then you get something back, right? And so there is a risk that if we don't pay enough attention, and I think this is mainly an agency, you know, this is a PTO problem, but the, the agency, I think, needs to pay close attention so that it's not, that someone doesn't come in and just dump a bunch of data in and say, my patent is on getting AI to do this. So it becomes, or using a neural network to the neural network is the same thing as saying on a computer. 
right? As opposed to advances in the underlying technology itself, which is, you know, has its own, but there's an existing framework absolutely, for that yeah. that could be applied. But in this, there is, a, our, our members are concerned anyway that there, there could be the same sort of problem with overbroad patents that came up in this country in the, uh, you know, in the late 90s, back when we were giving patents for exercising a cat with a laser pointer. <laughs> so you've talked about AI, yeah. right? Um, the administration is looking at several different areas. One is on quantum computing. Another is on AI, which you just described. Um, and they're also looking at 5G. Are there any areas that, besides AI that your, uh, your people are starting to worry about or think about a little bit more than others? Well, I mean, I think certainly one of the concerns we have um, had is, um, and this is an IP concern, um, is the uh, to be sure that when the government has information that it wants to run through particular mills, that's okay. Certainly with respect to the information the government creates, that's absolutely in general okay. Um, but when they start to do things with uh, material that is privately owned or proprietary, then I think they need to be more careful. We were very active um, in something called the Open Government Data Act. Okay. And part of what we were really concerned about uh, was to be sure that there was a portion of the government that said, look, if you're going to make this stuff more widely available if you're going to use AI to disseminate derivatives of it and so forth, that there has to be some process in place to be sure uh, that you're not doing it with other people's intellectual property and that somebody in the government needs to look at that before uh, disseminating it far and wide. So that's the kind of thing, you know, th that, that would be an example of one of the things that we would be concerned about, uh, although we're extremely supportive of the government's use of AI in general. Right. No, that right. makes sense. It's happening so quickly. It's unbelievable yeah. at this at this rate. Um, so another area that I'm very curious to hear from you is around the effects that GDPR has had. And then, of course, California's new Privacy Act. Right. Um, yeah, good times. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. It's unbelievable. So where to start? Um, well, I mean, I think the first place to start is uh, with at least what I view as reality in that the United States does not have a privacy law. So G so GDPR is the leading world model right now. And California is uh, the leading model in the United States. I don't think there's much debate about that. Um, I think uh, that, the, that the CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act, um, borrows heavily uh, from GDPR and the concepts that contained in there. Um, I also think that uh, as it was introduced and ultimately enacted, it was uh, barely coherent and uh, places there were sentences that trailed off into the mist. I mean, you just <laughs> didn't know where it's, you know, statutes with grammatical errors. And I mean, it's, it's something you rarely see, um, particularly repeatedly. <laughs> Um, it's kind of shocking. It is, but it, the, it's because of the way the statute came to be, which was um, it began as a ballot initiative. And so once there was a, there was a to make a long story extremely short, um, there was a negotiation between uh, Mr. McTaggart, whose initiative this was and that he financed, 
uh, and uh, the legislature and business. And the bottom line was that once enacted, a ballot initiative can be extremely difficult to amend. And that one would have required a supermajority uh, plus an external, I believe, an external limiting analysis that not only did you have to get two thirds of a of majority, but you also had to have an amendment that, quote, promoted privacy, close quote, whatever that might mean. Um, so there was a deal struck before the deadline, but the statute had to be voted on and out before the deadline passed and all that happened in like a week. Wow. Um, and quick. that's, it was very quick and it's a very, it is a, it is a long and dense statute. Um, so that, I mean, that accounts for the, uh, uh, that accounts for its initial state. It doesn't quite account for the quality of the cleanup that was done. Um, but it accounts for the initial state of that, of that law. So in this situation, do you think that if California sneezes this act, that the rest of the country is going to catch a cold. Are we all going to basically have to follow suit? Or? I mean, I think a lot. I think a lot of businesses are going to have to because of the way the law is written. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's essentially if if you come into, if you hold more than a hundred thousand consumer, or I'm sorry, fifty thousand pieces of information um, on consumer on fifty thousand people, I believe it is, uh, then you're within the scope of the statute. And California is an enormous state with an enormous economy. Um, not only are you obligated to uh, keep tabs on them in-state for their in-state activities, but also if they leave the state and they do business in Utah, you are also obligated to treat okay. that information under the CCPA and honor the rights you get, which are uh, to shorthand it. Basically, you get a right of disclosure, kind of like similar to GDPR. Um, you have a deletion right, which is different. You have an opt-out right, which prohibits the sale of, uh, of your information. Um, and this is all enforced by the attorney general. Okay. And notice as well? Notice as well. Yeah. Okay. Privacy policies, disclosure. What kind of information do you collect? What do you do with it? Who do you give it to? What kinds of businesses do you give it's it to? It's funny. In my former life, I worked for uh, the Better Business Bureau online. We mm -hmm. actually had to help people craft privacy policies 15, 20 years ago. It was one of my first jobs. And I was working with tons of attorneys. And we had to craft this language. It had a lot of these pieces in it. Um, but it didn't really become any COPA, COPA, yeah. which is Child Online Protection Act. Right, right. It was the first one that we had to deal with. And so there are a lot of things underneath uh, 13 years old, whatever the case might be. But uh, now it's everywhere right so right it's becoming much more of a thing right to be forgotten right all this fun stuff um so you had talked about piracy i'd mm -hmm. love to hear a little bit more about what you all are dealing with in that space and how you handle any of that that comes down the road i mean it it depends um it, it really depends on on what um uh, well it depends on a couple of things i mean first of all it depends on what the defendant's done right so there are different, um, you know, we, we don't swat mosquitoes with sledgehammers. Uh, sometimes it can be as simple as just sending a takedown notice to an ISP or an auction saying, look, this software is pirated, please take it down. But it just appears to be an individual who doesn't know better. Um, where it's a, uh, you know, a more systematic profit making enterprise, I think those requests become, you know, a little more pointed. Um, and they, they can go well beyond the ISP. Um, I think one of the things we're seeing uh, in, from an enforcement standpoint in this industry is that because software is becoming uh, a service rather than a series of uh, installations, uh, you know, the nature of that enforcement 
is is changing. It's changing, right? I, I mean, nobody's buying one copy of Word and then installing it on fifty computers and getting away with it, right? I mean, there's a way. Microsoft is not a member; we do not represent them. But that, <laughs> but that's you know that's but that's the kind of thing that people used to do, and they just don't do that anymore. They can't because it's cloud based. So you may be able to talk to this, maybe not. I'm not sure. But mm -hmm. the part that I'm kind of curious about are like the Tor networks, right? So networks um, or distributed networks where people have the ability to download from multiple computers. So you have this network where if somebody wants to download, let's say it is Microsoft Office, mm -hmm. they go to this site and they basically are downloading components from various computers all at once. So it's not any one person that you're downloading it from, but it's multiple distributed networks. Is that something that you all think about, go after, and how do you, how would you go after that hypothetically? Uh, so hypothetically, that non-hypothetically, that's an extremely difficult problem, right? Um, that is, and that is one of the benefits of SaaS. So in other words, if you have, even if you have a program that let's say 90% of it resides on your computer, but it still needs to talk to the cloud for 10% of it, you still need the key. You still have to talk to the cloud. You still have to get your permissions, right? I mean, that's one thing. I think the other thing about it is that um, for, I don't wanna, I don't wanna in any way diminish the, the um, seriousness of the problem of software piracy, but it's, it is different from let's say music um, where the files are so small and so readily available you know, I mean, yeah. people are really interested in, you know, somebody who really wants sophisticated CAD software. Okay. You can get it on peer to peer, but that's risky. Um, and it's even riskier now because a lot of this stuff that is available sometimes is altered to contain malware. So it's, it's, there are pieces of the software that get changed to expose security vulnerabilities and if it's not particularly in the legacy stuff. Um, and so it's, I, and I think there's growing consumer, some growing consumer awareness about that. So that is less of a, you know, it, it, that's a less appealing route. A lot of the success. And if you look at, I think the, the success in anti-piracy has basically been about keeping honest people honest, right? Um, in the music scenario, you had a situation where um, it was just so easy. It was yes. so easy, right? Oh, yeah. And that was the appeal. But now that these streaming services are out, I mean, why would you why would you risk loading a worm onto your computer when you could just go to Spotify or Apple Music or any one of other, any number of other providers to get whatever it is you want legitimately? And you know for nine bucks a month or whatever it is. No, I think you're absolutely right. So it's it's really interesting to look at the trajectory of this. So in the beginning, it was um, sort of centralized application software that you would download. Now it's become more of a SaaS model. So mm -hmm. there's that combination of the cloud-based or it's uh, provided service as you launch a web browser, whatever the case is, and has an application inside it. But I actually think we're going to be moving in the not too distant future to, um, and this is just my projection, who knows? Right. We'll see if it comes true or not to a distributed network where you actually have this downloaded application on your phone or on your computer, whatever the case is, and then you're interacting with the data that's gonna be also distributed, which would be in a, um, in a, like a blockchain of sorts. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's going to be like this weird world of semi-SaaS, semi-software that you have on your machine, but you have ultimately have control of everything that's on your device. Um, and then it's interaction between this distributed network, which people are able to sort of set up on their own. And once they have the domain for whatever it is it's interacting with, then you control it and it takes it out of the hands of a lot of these other groups. That's a little bit further down the road. We're talking maybe three to five years away. Mm -hmm. Some groups are trying to do it now, but I'm going to be really curious. And we'll check in maybe in three to five years from now and see where things are at. But right. I'm curious to hear what people are talking about that at that point in time. So, Chris, we were just talking a little while ago about GDPR and the effect of what's going on in California. Um, how does that have, if it does, have any effect on the First Amendment uh, at this stage? Do you see it having any impact whatsoever? Uh, yeah. Um, so that that is one of that's one of our areas of focus. Um, it is the the basic premise is that uh, data equals speech, and so it doesn't mean necessarily that all data gets uh, full blown robust First Amendment protection. That you know the uh, a statute regulating data gets the same level of scrutiny as one that prohibits criticism of public affairs. That's that's not true, but it does require some First Amendment analysis. And one of the really big problems with California was that it uh, was treading on information in the public domain. And let me explain what I mean by that. So in at least the first category of that information is the kind of stuff that you would think of in the United States anyway, is public records. It's the stuff that you go down to a courthouse or some other custodian and you say, let me see um, you know, the real estate records for this person or people. Uh, that's information that the government typically gives away on payment of the fee, and they don't restrict what you do with it afterwards. It's strange, to say the least, for the government to take that information then out of the public domain and, and prohibit its further dissemination. Um, and uh, it's not only strange, but it's constitutionally problematic hmm. because the government's interest in stop in the CCPA that it's claiming and claims repeatedly in the findings and elsewhere uh, is privacy. And how does the government claim a privacy in interest in that which it discloses voluntarily to all comers without restriction? So that's one problem with this kind of legislation. Um, and then the second goes to the public domain more broadly because it consists of things that are not contained in government records. And there's a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> what would those be? Like a presidential Twitter feed. Yeah. Um, or, <laughs> and, and, or even an individual's Twitter feed that, you know, when somebody speaks about something and uh, d takes no steps to restrict access to it whatsoever, you know, we all, we all do that um, from time to time. And it, there is, <clears throat> we don't get to put that genie back in the bottle. I, I for one, am grateful that uh, I grew up in a time where that did not exist, but yes. it's where we are now. <laughs> uh, so... Um, those kinds of things. But when you regulate that, in all seriousness, when you regulate, when you say to someone, yes, you made this information publicly available, it's accurate, you said it. Uh, and then you're having the government come in and say, well, you can't say that anymore. You can't transmit that information anymore. That's a really, that is, that's a First Amendment problem. And there are really good policy reasons for that. I mean, look, GDPR when you look at GDPR, again, at a fairly high level of abstraction, granted, but you look at GDPR, the way that the EU viewed privacy is the same way that we view speech. In other words, they come from the point of view as saying, 
privacy is really important, but if you can justify a limited exception to it, you are allowed to transmit this information. Ours is the opposite, where we regulate information as a last resort. Right. Right. Yeah. And so that's why, to put it in more legal language, if you engage in content-based discrimination, you must have the statute at issue must be narrowly tailored to a compelling state in interest. Right. Is that quote unquote. Uh, pretty <laughs> it much. sounds like it. It's pretty close. So, <laughs> pretty the, the, but that's that's what that means. That's the reason that that means because you know information is we view information differently, um, and so that's not to say that there can't be privacy laws. Of course, there can. There are things like you know health information and video recording information. There are federal statutes in both of those. No one's claiming that those are unconstitutional. That's I mean. That's ridiculous. But the, there are but there are other areas where there are entire ecosystems of data, uh, and p in particular in the public domain, that need to be preserved. And that's one of our primary focuses. So what does the future look like? Do you see a lot of changes coming in this space? Or do you think that it's just going to try to shake out a little bit? Uh, yes to both. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the concern that I have, and I think that we as an organization have, is that you have California, um, you have a lot of states watching, and they're going to follow on. And when they do that, they're going to make their own little changes, yeah. right? And that becomes a very difficult compliance problem. Definitely. It, it becomes a very, very difficult problem, and that's and, and probably an intractable one. And so that is why we, one of the main reasons why um, we have been advocating for a federal law, that there should be clearly established uh, data use practices for the purposes of certainty so that our members, our businesses and consumers can know, you know, this is okay, this is not okay. Businesses have certainty, consumers have privacy, and there's a a federal enforcer that comes in and says, you know, you, okay, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Now pay up. Let's call him Bubba. Yeah. Let's <laughs> call him the enforcer. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can call him uh, Frank Terrence Charlie. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Wonderful. Hey, thank you so much. Really Pleasure. appreciate it. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.